Thanks for listening to our messages from Southbridge Fellowship. For additional resources and information on connecting people to Jesus for life change, visit us online at southbridgefellowship.com. Good morning. We are glad that you're here with us this morning. Uh, just There are some seats. I see some people in the back on the floor. Uh, there's some seats up here, so come on in. We're family. We can get close to each other. And uh, I hope that you are excited to open up God's Word this morning. You excited? I had a mentor tell me that you should never bore someone with the Word of God. I said, if you're going to bore them, bore them with calculus. Sorry, math teachers, but that was what I was told. And let me tell you why I'm excited about today's passage of Scripture that we're going to look at. It's not because, like, the story of the passage is so entertaining or there's something in here that maybe you've never seen before. But I think if God does what I've been praying that he will do, what we're going to study today could change the way that you read the Bible forever. Uh, What we're going to see today uh, could totally open your eyes to some stuff that maybe you've never, never even realized before. And so I'm just going to pray for us. So we're going to open up in the First Corinthians chapter 2. Uh, remember, we're doing this series called Letters to RDU. And the reason why we're calling it Letters to RDU is because as we study First Corinthians, what we see is what's going on in the church of Corinth is going on in the churches in Raleigh-Durham. Uh, the issues that they have, the tempta- they've got the same temptations, temptation to bow their knee to the same unholy trinity, success, sports, sex. They've got the same struggles. They've got the same questions. Some of what, what's happening in this letter is that the, the author of this letter, this guy named Paul, is writing back to them about some of their questions that they have. There's some difficulties going on in the church. They've got struggles in their own personal lives and their relationships, and it's the same stuff that we deal with. And so that's why we're calling it Letters to RDU, and we're going we're gonna to jump in, picking up where we left off last week in just a moment. Let me pray. Father, thank you that we can open up your word, and you can open our hearts. And God, I pray Right now, as many people as are in this room, I don't know what's going on in everybody's life, but I pray that you'd remove any cynicism and that people would just be able to hear from you. I pray you'd remove uh, skepticism. Maybe people have been skeptics their whole life. And I pray they'd just be open to what you have to say to them today. And I pray, God, for people that are angry at you or people that are uh, discouraged or depressed or anxious. God, I pray that you just calm all of our hearts, bring your peace into this room, and that your spirit would move in our midst, up and down the aisles, whispering in our ears, speaking to us as we look into your word this morning. God, I pray you speak through my lips, whatever it is you desire to say today. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Have you ever noticed it's possible for little kids to do stuff that seems really cute when they do it, but it's like ridiculous if an adult does it? Like most kids suck their thumbs or a pacifier. We had one of our kids, we've got four daughters, those of you who are new to our church. One of our daughters, she didn't suck her thumb or a pacifier. She sucked, Wolfpack fans will love this, she sucked her middle two fingers Oh, kind of like put it on there and see how that goes. And so she'd suck her middle two fingers all the time. We we're just kind of like, yeah, that's just what she does. And you know, there's always the debate about nature or nurture, like why you do something. And my mom, my mom was in Florida. My mom sent us a bunch of pictures of me when I was a little baby. And we were going through them. And we found this picture where I'm sucking my middle two fingers. And we were like, oh, that's what you do that because dad does that. Now here's the reality. No one in my family knew that before we saw the picture. Do you know why? Because I don't walk around sucking my middle two fingers now. Can you imagine if I came up here this morning? I'm carrying my blankie, kind of, oh, I'm going to preach to you. Oh, I think, like, two middle. It's, like, ridiculous for an adult to do that. And so, like, one of the cutest things that can happen at church is somebody brings a newborn baby. Everybody loves newborn babies. My wife thinks newborn babies have a new baby smell. That's like, they do, somebody just said. My mom just said on the front row. They throw up on them. Like, it's milk. And, like, isn't that just nat? But at any rate... I, I love babies. Nobody hate me because I don't like babies. 
Somebody brings a new baby to church, everybody's oohing and on and having parties and giving presents and pinching cheeks. and Like, nobody come up and pinch my cheeks this morning, okay? I'm 42 years old. That's not cute. Can you imagine if some guy comes in, he's 30 years old, and he walks over to the, the cafe out there, and we don't have his favorite donut anymore, and he just throws himself on the ground and th- starts throwing a tantrum? Okay, that's not cute when a kid does it either, is it? But there's certain things that, like, you just expect, apart from, like, a disability or handicap, you expect just at a certain time, certain things stop in our lives, that we mature. Can I tell you a problem that that happens in in this church, every church in, in the triangle? There are a lot of people that have been followers of Christ, and today's message is really, if you're not a follower of Jesus yet, I'll, I'll give you an opportunity to trust Jesus at the end of the service, but today's message is really for followers of Jesus. There are a lot of people that have bowed their knee, trusted Jesus Christ as their Savior three years ago, five years ago, 10, 50 years ago in some, some cases, and they're still babies in Christ, and that causes a lot of problems in churches. And so today we're going to ask the question, what does it look like to grow up spiritually, What does it look like to be mature in Christ? And if you have your Bibles, we're in 1 Corinthians, towards the back of the New Testament, if you've got a Bible, and the verses will be on the screen. But 1 Corinthians chapter 2, I'm going to start reading in verse 6, and it's going to seem like we just jumped into a thought. Because what's happening is we're picking up, I know a lot happened since the last time we opened the Bible together. Some of you all gotten sick, some of you all changed, some of you even the same people that were here last week, okay? So go back and listen to the message online. We're picking up the same thought that we were talking about last week. Now, it's possible, the, the verses we're going to read today, if you don't read them in the context of what we talked about last week, you can make this passage say anything you want. But remember, last week we were talking about what it is to be a Christ-centered Christian, or a cross-centered Christian, and how the cross crushes us, it crushes our pride, the cross calls us to salvation, the cross changes us. And Paul's been going with that thought, and he's talked about, I don't want to preach Christ in a way that, that empties the gospel of its power, chapter 1, verse 17, then chapter 2, verses 1 through 5, he's just said, when I came to you, I didn't come to you with eloquent words. I wasn't trying to argue in the kingdom. I was trying to proclaim to you Christ and Christ crucified. Then verse 6 says this. Yet among the mature, we do impart wisdom. Although it's not a wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away. But we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. None of the rulers of this age understood this, For if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But, as it is written, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. We'll stop right there. We'll go all the way through, Lord willing, chapter 2 today, but stopping right there. Did you notice in verse 6, it starts with the word yet? You know, that's, that's a contrast word. Some of your translations might have the word however, if you're not just reading it off the screen, and you brought your own Bible. And I know last week was Valentine's Day. Maybe somebody said sweet things to you. They came and said, oh, how I love thee. Let me count the ways. You are beautiful and kind and sensitive and smart and you serve. Yet, <laughs> it got your attention at that moment, right? Like somebody's, You're amazing. You're awesome. However, you know something else is about to come here, right? Why does Paul start this with the word yet? He starts with the word yet because of all the stuff that he said last week about wisdom. In chapter 1, starting in verse 17, remember, I don't, want to, I don't preach with these eloquent words. I don't want, there's a way to present the gospel that actually empties the gospel of its power when you focus on the messenger rather than the message. He said, I didn't do that. And then remember chapter 18, the cross, it's foolishness to those who are perishing. 
How ridiculous is the cross to somebody who, who's going after success? Who's going after some kind of pleasure? You tell me a follow guy who was crucified? I said, but it's the power of God for those who are being saved. But then he goes on, and verse 19, just skim through a couple of them in chapter 1 if you brought a copy of the Bible. It says, for it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning. I will thwart. Verse 20, where is the one who is wise? And you can keep just where you see wisdom throughout. Verse 27, but God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. And chapter 2 says, and when I came, I came to you, brothers. I did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. Verses 4 and 5, chapter 2, it says, And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in the demonstration of the Spirit and of the power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men. And so it can seem like Paul's against wisdom. He's anti-wisdom. So he said all this stuff, not wisdom, and to shame the wise. Greeks want wisdom. Then come with you wisdom. The cross looks like foolishness. Yet, however, I do proclaim a wisdom. What Paul's against is not wisdom. What Paul's against is the wisdom of this world. And we talked about last week how the wisdom of this world always has self at the center. Remember we talked about that? It's all, it doesn't matter which philosophy, which religion that's works-based. It doesn't matter what you pick. It all comes down to self. The proverb of our day, the proverb of our day is you do you. You gotta be true to yourself. What does that do? It puts you on the throne. You're central. And so whether it's self-help, self-esteem, Whatever it is that's self-centered, let me tell you about it, it's self-deceptive and self-destructive. And we said that there was a way that seems right to man, but in the end it leads to death, Proverbs 14, 12. Paul's against that. And remember what he said wisdom was? Chapter 1, verse 24 tells us what wisdom is. It's the cross of Christ. Is that Christ is the power and the wisdom of God. He's for that kind of wisdom, but not everybody gets it. Who is it that gets it? Look what he said in verse 6. Yet among the mature, we do impart wisdom. So who are the mature? Well, we're going to see, and we won't get into it a ton this week, but if you go down to chapter 3 in verses 1 through 4, is he talks about people that think they're mature, and they're not mature. And the way that you find out that they're not mature is probably a different way than most of us would think. So what does it mean to be mature in Christ? Well, to be mature in Christ doesn't mean a certain level of Bible knowledge. Like you can define premillennialism and amillennialism versus the Millennium Falcon or whatever, you've got some charts, you've gone to enough classes and you've memorized enough verses and it doesn't mean you've been around Christianity for a certain amount of time. And the immature Christian isn't just the person who makes a profession of faith and there's no fruit in their life ever. In fact, there's a lot to see in chapter 3 verses 1 through 4. It's a contrast of what he's talking about here in chapter 2 and verse 6. But let me just give you just a broad one. You can, just, you'll all, you can always remember this. Here's maturity. Maturity is you look like Jesus. That's the simple, it's Christ-likeness. But that's so big, that's so huge. Like how, what, but he's God in the flesh, and how do I actually do that? And what are the things that are just for him and doesn't apply to me? And that can be hard to get your hands around, like hard to be practical with. And so I want to share with you a definition of maturity that has impacted my life. It's by a guy named James Samra. He wrote his dissertation on maturity, but they they kind of put it into normal terminology that normal people would read, and you can find a book that he wrote, James Samra, um, on Amazon if you want to look it up. But here's the definition. The definition we have is this. A mature believer is a believer whose life conforms to his or her status as an heir of God's kingdom. So let me read that again. A mature believer is a believer whose life conforms to his or her status as an heir of God's kingdom. And so here's the life-changing truth today is this. There are things that are positionally true about you 
And this should change how you read the whole Bible, not just this passage. We're going to talk about it from this passage. But as you go through the Bible, you see all these statements that are about your position in Christ, your status. You are holy. The Bible calls you saints. (laughs) Anybody here act like a saint all last week? Please don't raise your hand. That's lying. But it's positionally true that at the moment when you realize that that you, you as a sinner that you are separated from God, that the wages of sin is death, that you, you can't be right with God on your own, you can't forgive yourself, but that Jesus died on the cross for your sins, cleanses you of your sins, that as far as the east is from the west, so far as you removed your sins from you, that, that you were sin, your sin was like scarlet, it's as white as snow, that you've been cleansed of all unrighteousness, amen? That you're positionally holy before, that one means when God looks at you, we talked about last week, justification, he's declared you righteous, he sees you through the blood of Christ, he sees you as he sees Jesus, you are positionally holy, holy but we don't live holy so practically a lot of times we're out of our position that's a sign of immaturity it's when your status conforms or when your your life conforms to your status when your position and your practice are the same that's maturity and so think about that through the whole bible first peter you're a royal priesthood so do you function like a priest like a bridge between people and god you're a holy nation that we're holy as a people or, or you read Ephesians, in Ephesians chapter one, it says that we've been adopted into God's family. Do you live like you're a child of God? Galatians says that we're no longer slaves to the law, to sin, but we're sons and daughters. Ephesians, we're adopted and we've got every spiritual blessing. We've got an, do we live like there's an inheritance awaiting us? Because when you know you've got an inheritance coming, that changes the way you live now. And, and Jesus says, his words in Matthew, he's preaching the Sermon on the Mount, you are the light of the world, you're the salt of the, that is your position in Christ. Now, when your position and your practice line up, that's maturity. And so, so think about it like this. I've got this light back here. Just imagine this light is my standard. This is the, like, holiness. That's the standard. When, those, when I'm aligned with that, that's maturity. And so what are some things the Bible says? Just think about this. It says that we are the light of the world, right? Like the light of the world. But we like darkness because we don't want our sins to be exposed, and so we wander into isolation, into not wanting those things to be seen. And as we live that out, we're demonstrating our immaturity in Christ. But when they're lined up, that's mature. And do you know what that ends up looking like? That looks like Christ-likeness. And so, so, so holiness, that we are holy. But, but the Bible says, James says that each one of us, not just by the enemy, but by our own flesh, that when we're enticed, we're led away into the sin that we want, that we want on our own. And so we start thinking things that aren't true about ourselves, about other people, about the Bible. We start isolating ourselves. And before you know it, we're really far away. That, now, positionally, this is still true. You, you are the light of the world. You are holy. You are a saint. But practically, when you don't live that out, what you show is your immaturity in Christ. And so... Paul's talking to these people here. He's not making an elite group when he talks about maturity. See, it's possible. Some people take this passage and they do that. Abusive pastors, authoritarian pastors will sometimes take this and say, you just don't, the Spirit's told me, God told me these things, you just don't know them. Uh, Misled congregation members will do that when they've got an agenda. What they're showing is their immaturity. If you read this passage in context, it's the very thing that Paul's writing again. It's 180 degrees the opposite of what he's saying. Because when he says the ultimate, their, their immaturity is because some of you are saying, I follow Paul, and some of you are saying, I follow Cephas, and some of you, it's division in the church by creating classes and elitism. 
This maturity is possible for every Christian. When Jesus died on the cross, the veil was torn. You have just as much access to God as I have and any other Christian you've met has. And so maturity in Christ, that's very possible. What are some marks in this passage? Well, let's see some marks of maturity. We see at least a couple in this passage. The first one is this. It's our first point today. A continual dependence on God. A continual dependence on God. If you, you look at uh, in chapter 2 and verse 5, Paul talks about the foundation of our faith. He says, so that your faith, that's the word for trust, might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. And then, and I didn't use the word faith, though. I didn't say a continual faith in God. Continual dependence. Because the way that we think about trust, and the way the Bible's talking about trust, it's not always the same thing. Like, I might trust you with the keys to my car, and I trust your, your I mean, accidents happen, but you're probably not going to wreck my car. Or I might trust you, we might set up a lunch appointment together, and I don't have to call you three or four times, are you still coming? Hey, you're going to be there. You know it's at noon, right? Like, I just trust you're going to show up. And that's what we think of for trust. But dependence is, like, I need oxygen. I need food and water. Like, I'm depending on those things. And we have a dependence on God that's a continual dependence. And the reason why I said dependence is if you looked at verse 9, verse 9 says, as it is written, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of a man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. What's he talking? In the context, the wisdom that he's talking about, remember, is the cross of Christ. We would have never dreamt up the cross. We'd have never thought of God putting on flesh becoming one of us, but still being God, but emptying himself of his powers, but still doing miracles. How does that work? I don't know. My mind could never fathom this. And then living a sinless life, because we couldn't, and then dying in our place? We would have never dreamt that up. That's why we're so dependent on him, we would have never even thought of this. We would never come up with a way for salvation. And many of us, we get that for salvation, and the Corinthians did. In fact, if you look at chapter 3 and verses 1 through 4, it's clear when he talks to them about being immature, they trust him for eternity. They just don't trust him in their daily lives. It says, but I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, but they're brothers. As infants, but they're in Christ, they're Christians. I fed you with milk, not with solid food, for you are not ready for it. And even if you are not, even now, you are not ready. Now, he was with them for 18 months in Acts chapter 18. It's about three years later. And he's saying, it's been four and a half years you've been a Christian. You should be ready to move on. You shouldn't be with the blanket in hand sucking on your fingers anymore. Okay, it's cute. It's okay when you're a baby. shouldn't be happening anymore. How do we know? For you're still of the flesh, verse 3. And he doesn't talk about their knowledge. <laughs> he doesn't talk about how long they've been around. Just, there's jealousy and strife among you. We see it by the way you're living. Your identity, you should be dependent on God. You're not dependent on him. The temptation is we depend upon him for eternity, but we'll take care of the daily. We depend upon him for heaven. We, can't, we couldn't even fathom a way to get to heaven. We think the way most people in their minds, the way they come up with to get to heaven is I hope that I just do more good stuff than bad stuff. But God says that his standard is holiness, perfection. So that doesn't work. So then what do we, we can't even come up with a way. So we got to trust him for that. But you know this whole this situa- this situation i got to do with my kids? i got that. I'll handle it. Money, I know what God says, but I think I know a better way. My career path, basically, God, you handle the heaven stuff, and I got here. 
This is how many of us live our lives. And so the temptation for the Corinthians, and they fell into it, and for all, it's all Christians. You know that's why the whole book of Galatians is written? Like we wouldn't even have the book of Galatians if they had just started by faith and continued by faith. He says, here's the problem. You think that the spiritual journey starts by faith, and then it's on you to figure out how to live as a Christian. <laughs> you just got way messed up. Hold up. Who? He uses a race analogy. He says, who cut in on you? You were running well. Somebody cut in on you. Now you're off course. And that's what happens to many of us. But what we see through the Bible is that God, he calls us to trust him. It's a decision when you place your faith in Christ, but then it's, continu- it's a lifetime process of growing and learning to trust. Just think about Abraham, the father of our faith. If you read Genesis chapter 12 through Genesis chapter 22, you get a, a glimpse of Abraham's life. What happens is Abraham gets called to follow God based on some promises. Now here, you need to know that. Some people think faith is just being stupid and putting God's name on it, just FYI. I know that just from experience of talking to people. Let me, you want, some people like tweetable statements for a sermon. Here's your tweetable statement. Faith is not your parachute for stupidity, okay? I'll give you a second. Go ahead and tweet that out. Faith is not a parachute for stupidity. What, that, what I mean by that is this. Some people have no plan. They don't know what they're doing. They just want to do something radical. They go, just doing it by faith. <laughs> faith is when you live according to the promises of God. It's not just some, you don't just pick random stuff, decide to do it, and go, it's by faith, and that's code for, I don't have a plan. Now, I'm not saying you gotta have all the details mapped out in every situation. God is gonna call you to step into things you can't see, and it is gonna look radical, especially based on this world's wisdom, but you're doing it based on the promises of God. That's faith. See, Abraham has, a pro- he has three promises from God. Genesis chapter 12, God comes to Abraham and says, I want you to leave this land. You don't even know where you're going, but I'm going to give you a land, a seed. You're going to have a son and a blessing. I'm going to bless those who bless you. You're going to be blessed. So Abraham goes based on promises. He takes steps out by faith, and he starts going. He doesn't even know where he's going. But then tragedy comes. He made a decision. Like if, if, if it was just about that moment of dependence, he's good for the rest of his life. But then what you see in the same chapter, tragedy comes. Does God ever use tragedy to grow your faith? See, most people have been through tragedy. They're followers of Jesus. You know, nobody wants to go through tragedy, but you look back on it and you're like, that's one of the best things that ever happened in my faith journey. And so tragedy comes, there's a famine, and he lies about his wife. Faith fail. But he's the father of our faith. Yeah, I love that the Bible's honest about people. And he blows it. And then, remember, the, one of the promises was you're going to have a son, but it's been years. Genesis chapter 16, there's no son. And so his wife has this idea. Why don't we use one of our servants, Hagar, and you have a son. We'll help God. We'll get God's, God's thing according to man's process. Ever been tempted to do that? That doesn't go well. Faith fail. And, and here's the deal. Some of you are in the midst right now of making decisions that are faith failures. With your finances, with your family, in your own spiritual journey, in your careers. God's not done with Abraham. You're not done with you. Now, there are consequences. Listen, all, the, all the strife you see in the Middle East right now, Palestinian warfare, all that stuff, it ties back to Abraham's decision in Genesis chapter six, 16. So there's consequences. There's ripple effect. I'm not saying just go ahead and blow it, but God's not done with you. And he teaches us stuff through our failures, through our struggles, through the tragedies. 25 years later, after he gets the promise. Now, when I think about that, I think, God spoke the world into existence. Couldn't he have given Abraham a son right away? Why did he wait? See, God's never broken a promise. There's a lot of promises. If you read the Bible, he hasn't fulfilled yet. How about his second coming? 
but he's never broken one. Why does he wait? He's growing Abraham's faith. And so 25 years later, Abraham has a son, names him Isaac. Everything's golden, right? No. Get to Genesis chapter 22, which is about 10 or 15 years after that. And read Genesis chapter 22, verse 1 says this. After these things, that's a lot of things. God tested Abraham. Why is he testing him? He's growing his faith. He says, will you trust me? The thing you love most in your life now is your son Isaac. Will you give me Isaac? Do you still acknowledge you're dependent upon me? Even when it doesn't make sense? And how many times do we see stuff that happens in our own lives in Bible stories where it's like, that didn't make, if I was in that, that wouldn't make any sense. Yeah, God's wisdom's beyond our wisdom. His ways and our ways are not the same. But will you depend upon him? See, what, what Paul's rebuking these Corinthians for is they started depending upon him. God, eternity, you got that. They're in Christ. They're, they're Christians, but they're not living out this dependence. And where does God want you to depend upon him more? Maybe with your kids, maybe with your, your money, maybe decisions you're making. There, it's all, see, with the amount of people that we have here, it's different things for each one of us, but I promise you he's continuing to call you into continual dependence upon him. So a continual dependence is one mark of maturity. Another mark of maturity is this, a compelling love for God. A compelling love for God. God. Go back and read those verses that I read to you, verses uh, 6 through 9. Yet among the mature, remember that's who he's talking to here, we do impart wisdom, although it's not the wisdom of this age, self-centered wisdom, or the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away, but we impart a secret and hidden wisdom. It's the cross. Chapter 1, verse 24, it's the wisdom of God, the cross of Christ. It's the wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. None of the rulers of this age understood this, and we know they're talking about the cross. He says right here, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But, as it is written, he quotes this passage from Isaiah 64, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, when God has prepared for those who love him. So he's talking to those who love him. <coughs> Positionally, you are loved by God. How do you know if you love him? Say, like, well, we love him. I just, I just love him. Like, how do you... How do you, there's all these things that are said about love, right? And we're going to talk more about it when we get First 1 Corinthians chapter 13, that's the, the chapter on love in the Bible. But how do you know if you're in love? Like Valentine's Day this past week. Some of you love it, some of you hate it, right? Let's just, a little show of hands. How many of you think Valentine's Day is ridiculous? All right. How many of you are like, Valentine's Day is the test of love? Like if somebody didn't give you flowers or candy, so you're just, you're shaming now. You don't do that. How many of you celebrate Valentine's Day? You gave a card, some kind of something, something. All right, that's about half and half. That's about the stats in America, just so you know. 53% of people will buy a gift for Valentine's Day. And obviously, the rest will not. For those who do, some people, it's like, if you didn't get that gift, that's the test of, I read one story this week online about a guy who gave his, his girlfriend at the time an empty box of chocolates. But listen to this. This guy thought he was pretty smooth. She got the chocolates. It was like, who gives an empty box of chocolates? And he said, when I got the chocolates, I didn't realize they were all filled with coconut. You're allergic to coconut. So for Valentine's Day, I saved your life. <laughs> she ended that relationship. The post is actually by her uh, talking about that. How do you know? How do you know if somebody loves you? How do you know if you love God? It's easy as Christians to assume, like, well, I don't hate God. Of course I love God. I must be one of the ones that love God. 
Here's what the Bible says. The Bible says in 1 John chapter 4, in verse 19, that we love him because he first loved us. And so let me start by asking you this question. Do you realize how loved you are by God? Because you go back through the passage and you start seeing some things here. Because remember the passage, the wisdom is the cross of Christ. And so if the, if the wisdom is the cross of Christ, the ultimate demonstration of his love, look at what he, what he says about this. It says, but this verse, don't miss this, verse seven. Before the ages, remember the cross of Christ is God's pursuit of you. So he's coming after you. It says, before the ages. Now, a lot of times when we talk about like the pro-life movement and we need to speak up, you're gonna have any social justice, you speak on behalf of people that are you know, vulnerable people. How about the people that have no voice at all? Babies. They're in the womb. And we quote verses, Jeremiah, like when you were in your mother's womb, God knew you. And, and Psalm 139. And before you were in your mother's womb, God was, pers- God was coming after you before there was a you. That's how much he loves you. You see what this passage says here? It says, before the ages, you wouldn't even be able to fathom and dream up that he would do anything to come pursue you. And then, then we read verses 10 through 13. Let me read you verse 10 through 13. These things God has revealed to us. So we wouldn't know them unless God revealed them. Now up to this point in the book of 1 Corinthians, we've only heard of the Spirit of God one time talking about spiritual gifts. In the next few verses, the Holy Spirit, not just how many times the word Spirit's mentioned, because sometimes we talk about our Spirit, the Holy Spirit's mentioned five times through here. These things God's revealed to us through the Spirit, for the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. Think about that for a second. The Spirit searches everything. How many, how many of you did a Google search this week? Do, anybody do a Google search this week? Google's powerful stuff. I did a Google search this week. I just typed in God. That's it. Four billion hits. I also typed in ocean, three, almost three, it's 2.9 billion hits. Lots of information out there. And it says here that the spirit, think about the search engine we're using here, Google, the spirit. There's a lot of differences, not gonna get into all that. Everything, even the depths, that word for depths is often used to talk about the mighty sea. You know, I read that, that of the ocean, do you know how much of the ocean we have not discovered? Of the ocean floor, 99%, it's estimated, We've not discovered 99% of the ocean floor. 95% of the ocean as a whole. Three billion hits. Here's the reality about the way that the Spirit searches. The Spirit's not going out and looking for information, trying to gather information together. The Spirit penetrates. The Spirit already knows all things. And the Spirit is what's revealing. If If you're a follower of Christ, you have the Spirit, Romans 8, 9. So if you don't have the Spirit of God, you're not a Christian. But if you have Christ, you have the Spirit of God. The Spirit of God opens your eyes. You couldn't see the love of God. You wouldn't understand the cross. But the Spirit of God who searches all things reveals it to you, shows it to you. For, look at this verse, verse 11. For who knows a person's thoughts except the spirit of that person, which is in him. (laughs) Pause right there. (laughs) My wife's not in this service. (laughs) Sometimes, sometimes your significant other may, may just want you to know what they're thinking. Can I give you a little ammunition? Verse 11, nobody knows a person's thoughts except for that person. He's given an analogy here. So sometimes I say, would you just tell me? Like, I'm not going to get it right, okay? I just already know I'm not going to get it right. Just tell me. Let me read it to you again. For who knows a person's thoughts except the spirit of that person which is in him? So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the spirit of God. But you have the spirit. Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. Do you, not, 
you know what he's talking? That you would understand the cross of Christ. You don't understand his pursuit. He's come. Before there was a you, he was pursuing you, and we would never even get this if it wasn't for the Spirit. I was thinking about it this week and different stories I saw online and things like that. And thinking about the stuff that we do in life. Imagine if we were doing it and we couldn't see. We were blind or had a blindfold on. And then we sensed somebody was coming after us. What would we do? And most of us, we wouldn't naturally run towards danger. Most of us, we protect, and we want to be secure, and we want safety and control, and so we flee. And imagine you're being pursued. There's this one story that was, this week was a guy who killed a mountain lion. He was running, and he killed a mountain lion. It's a bad dude. It's an awesome story. Imagine you're out on a trail, only you're on this trail blindfolded, and you hear something pursuing you. You assume it's dangerous, so you run then you're caught and the blindfold is removed and you realize the one who caught you is dangerous because he's holy and righteous and majestic and more powerful than you and other than you. But he's caught you to reveal his love for you. Did he do whatever he had to do to have relationship with you? That's what we're talking about here. The Spirit reveals to us these things that you would never dream up in your own mind. The cross of Christ. Foolishness to this world. But it's the power of God to you. Do you know how loved you are? So how do you know if you love back? Well, the Bible tells us two ways for sure, so just application points. The first one is this, that you obey everything he says. In John chapter 14, ironically, it's almost like the Bible's all woven together. In John chapter 14, Jesus is promising them the Holy Spirit, the helper who's going to come. And listen to what he says in John chapter 14, verse 15. He says, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. Which ones, Jesus? Yep. All of them. Oh, could you just make it simple? Like, tell us what's the most important one. Love God. Love other people. The rest of it's just kind of commentary, okay? And he says, and I will ask the Father, he'll give you another helper, that's the Holy Spirit, to be with you forever, verse 17, even the spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you. He'll be in you. See, I love what the apostle Paul prays when he's talking about the love of God. And he uses words very similar to 1 Corinthians chapter 2. And he says in, first, or in Ephesians chapter 3, he's praying for the believers in Ephesus, and he says, I pray that you would know the height and the width and the length and the depth of the love of Christ, a love that surpasses knowledge. You can't know it. But then he says, now to him who's able to do more than you could ever ask or imagine, according to his power, the Holy Spirit, that's at work in you. The Holy Spirit reveals to you the love of God. And how do we know if we love him back? Because you, you do what he says. Why would you do what he says? Because you're depending upon him. You trust that when he gives you commandments, it's not because he's trying to make your life hard, because he wants what's best for you, that he's a father that can actually be trusted, unlike all of our earthly fathers are broken. But our heavenly father is perfect, and he loves you and comes after you. And so what's the problem for the Corinthians? so interesting. A lot of times we take chapter 3, verses 1 through 4, and we talk about the carnal Christian. And a lot of people use the application of that as the person who makes a decision for Jesus and then you, you never hear anything from them. Like, they don't go to church. They, there's nothing in their life that's really Christian about them. Maybe they pray every once in a while. 
You're going, isn't that the carnal Christian? That person does exist. We will talk about them later in 1 Corinthians. But that's not what chapter 3 is talking about. See, chapter 3, if you think about who he's talking to here, he's talking to people that attend church regularly. The New Testament doesn't even have a category, by the way, for, for Christians that aren't connected with a local church. I'm not saying it's not possible to be a Christian, but they don't have a category for that. They attend church regularly. So then chapter 1. They've got a mentor, Paul, that they're corresponding with about spiritual issues. They debate theological topics, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, or chapter 8, 8 through 10, all of it. In, they've got a ton of spiritual gifts, chapters 12 through 14. They're incredibly endowed with spiritual gifts. And so a lot of the things they have would be what we would consider maturity. But their life doesn't line up with their position. Their position and their practice, not the same. How do you know? Because he said, the marks of your maturity, verse 3, jealousy and strife. That's what Galatians chapter 5 lists as works of the flesh. How, how do you end up with jealousy and strife? Let me tell you how all fights begin. James tells us in James chapter 4, he says this, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? Yeah, all of us. You desire and do not have, so you murder and you covet and cannot obtain. So you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you don't ask. Oh, I just need to ask. But when you do ask, verse 3, you ask and you do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. Here's the problem. Ultimately, the problem is this. It's where we ended last week. Pride. And so the problem for these followers in Corinth was that they believed the cross of Christ, but they were living according to the philosophy of this world. They had the self at the center Remember when we ended the message last week, if you were here, uh, we were talking about there, there's two, two types of people, and I used Hugh Hefner as an example, and I used our, our missionaries to China as an example, two extremes. I said, now the temptation for us is to go, I'm going to go kind of the middle road. Like, I know total self-indulgence, that's not the way, but man, that's kind of extreme, not going to go that route. And the middle road is this, I trust Jesus, but I'm all about my own success. I'm all about myself and my self-esteem, and my self-centeredness, and I'm going to do what's best for me, but I, but I trust Jesus. That's what they're doing here. And that's what Paul's calling the carnal Christian. But Galatians chapter 5 that, that describes jealousy and strife as living by the flesh, it also talks about what it looks like to live by the Spirit. It's got what's called the fruit of the Spirit there. In Galatians chapter 5, verses 22 through 22, let me read it to you. Read it, to you. it says this, but the fruit... Singular, one fruit, nine flavors. Here we go. But the fruit of the Spirit is love. Wow, it's like the Bible is all tied together. The fruit of the Spirit is love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control against those things. There's no law. And you know what chapter 6 goes on to talk about? The spiritual person. Those of you who are spiritual, restore the... The person that's in sin, who are the spirit? The ones whose position lines up with the practice. When people start to get off, restore them, bring them back. Not be, you don't become proud in that. We all, we all do that. But, but when you're in line, then you help the other people that aren't in line. That's part of living in community. What was the problem for them? It was the way they were, how you know if somebody's mature or not. It's not about how much Bible they know. It's not about how long they've been around Christianity. It's how do they interact with each other. The second way you know whether you love God is whether you love other people. 1 John chapter 4 says it like this in verses 20 and 21. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. 
So are you saying, Scott, if I hate my brother, then I don't love God? That's what the Bible's saying. Email Jesus. For he who does not love his brother, whom he has seen, cannot love God, whom he's not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. Can I tell you something? We live in a world that is desperate for love. We recently did the outreach where uh, we were handing out care packets to homeless people in our community. And I was talking with our outreach and missions pastor, Pastor Scott Mason, about that. And I was sharing with him. I said, you never know. Like this, We might not see the results here. We might not know. But just a little thing can make such a huge difference in people's lives. And I told him a story about when I was at the first church I went to after I had trusted Jesus as my Savior, did an outreach where they were, they were handing out just soda pop on the side of the road. We were up in Michigan. They call it pop. We call it soda. I tried to blend it together there for you. And it was 90 degrees outside. It was a busy intersection. And we're just standing out in the intersection. And you know when you pull up to an intersection, anytime there's people standing out there, they're either asking you to give them money or they're handing out propaganda, right? And so people were holding, wearing signs that said no strings attached. And we were just giving them whatever they want. Coke, Pepsi, they didn't have an affiliation there. And so Coke, Pepsi, water, whatever people wanted, we're handing it out. And my job one day was the runner. And the runner would go back to the church office, fill up the cooler with ice and, and different sodas and stuff. And I was going through the reception area, and one of the receptionists said, we just got a call, an anonymous call from a guy. And he asked us, are you the church that's handing out soda on the side of the road? And we told him that we were. And she said that the guy said back, I was on my way home to take my own life, but I think I'm going to come to church this weekend. I don't know what happened. It was an anonymous call. Like, I don't know if he came. I don't know if his life was changed. I don't know. But people are desperate for love. And what does the Bible say? If you love God, you're going to love other people. It's going to, because your life's not all just about you. You realize how loved you are. That puts you in a place of security where you can then love God and then love other people. See, loving other people is not just this task for us to do. And here's the reality. We've got to be cautious, church, that we just don't start loving all the people in our community. And then, remember the problem was within the church. What does Jesus say, John 13, 35? By this all men will know that you're my disciples if you love each other. You love one another. And so you come to this place and there's lots of people you don't even know. And do you even take the time to say, what's your story? What's going on in your life? Can I pray for you? And we got to be, we gotta be careful here not to just make these assumptions because things are true about our position that they're happening in our practice. So the challenge is not, hey, don't walk around with your Bible and your fingers in your mouth and carrying a little blankie. The challenge is, does your, your position and your practice, do they line up? Do you love God? Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for your son Jesus, that he came and pursued and loves and loves regardless and and comes after us doing whatever it takes to catch us and god i pray i pray for maybe somebody that checked out at the beginning because they're saying well he said us for christians and i'm not a christian maybe that's you and god is calling you to become a christian today he's saying to drop the barriers drop the defenses the questions you have aren't your real questions you really don't just you just don't want to surrender your life and it's time for you to surrender your life to jesus he came and he died for your sins he loves you that much does anybody else love nobody else loves you that much And I pray what Paul prayed for the Ephesians. I pray that you would know the height and the depth and the length and the width of God's love for you. And right now you surrender your life to Jesus Christ as your Savior. If God's speaking to you to do that right now, then 
and just confess your sins to him. Call upon him to be your Lord, to be your Savior. Like we, like the, we have people do that all the time. We had a lady do that last week at our church. And didn't expect to coming, but maybe God's got a different plan for you than you had when you came in these doors and, and trust Jesus as your Savior. And just acknowledge your sin before him. Ask him to be your Savior. Say, I want you to be my Savior. Will you forgive me of my sins? And I surrender my life to you. I depend upon you. I want to begin a relationship with you right now. And the Bible promises that he will save you. He'll rescue you from your sin and give you a relationship with him. Those of you who have a relationship with Jesus, maybe he's spoken to your heart. Maybe it wasn't even about things that we said today. What about areas of your life that they're said to be true about you in the Bible, but you know in your practice they're not lining up, and God wants to align those things. And he can use tragedy, and he can use mental struggles, and he can use physical struggles, and he can just use his words speaking to you, and maybe that's what he's doing right now. Maybe he's using all that together, and, and you need to talk to him about those things, about aligning those things. Maybe there's some things you need to repent of or give up, and Maybe some things you need to pray about. We're going to sing a song in just a moment, and uh, we're going to take communion together. But I know that any, any week we come together, there are people that need prayer, and so I'm just going to ask a couple of our elders and elders' wives or prayer team members just to come up here to the front by these tables, by the communion tables, and you can just stay here during communion even. There might be somebody who wants to grab you and pray with you during that time. If you want somebody to pray with you, I just want you to know these people are up here, and they're available, and you might need healing or you might have a burden you want to lay down, or you might have a decision you want to make for Jesus, uh, these people would love to pray with you. And so if you just want to come right now, even before we sing the song, you can come. If you're on our leadership team, elder team, deacon, you guys know who you are. And Father, I pray. I pray as we sing this song that we wouldn't just be doing the next religious thing to do, that we think about these words, that you'd speak to our hearts. Because the sermon's done, we're not done. As we go into communion, that we would be proclaiming through our lives the the death of your son Jesus, and, and really the proclamation of how much you love us. Thank you for loving us so much. Thank you for being such a great father. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.